Hello, you wonderful people, and welcome to another podcast episode with your host, Christy Scanlon. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Tom Buck, who sheds light on the hidden mental health battles of retired athletes. In this episode, we discuss the stigmatization of elite sports, and we also consider the vulnerability of youth athletes and those performing at the highest level. Dr. Buck also shares his definitions of psychology and how it has evolved over the years with greater emphasis on well-being. He discusses his PhD, which looks at mental health within elite sports and emphasizes the importance of appropriate education and understanding in developing knowledge within the field of psychology and mental health literacy. This podcast also delves into the cultural and societal factors that really perpetuated the misunderstanding and dehumanization of mental health. Dr. Buck also touches on toxic masculinity and the societal expectations placed on athletes and individuals in professional sport. You can find me, Christy Scanlon, across Instagram and on social media by searching my name, Christy Scanlon. I have a big announcement to make this week on my Instagram page, so please feel free to follow and engage on there. Please rate and review the podcast if you enjoyed this show. But first, enjoy this episode and see you on the next one. So, Dr. Tom Buck, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. My first question is, is what is your definition of psychology? Um, that's an interesting one. I think my, my understanding of psychology is the way I've often approached it is looking at specific behaviours, um, reasons, rationale, beliefs behind certain actions as well. So, for example... Certainly when we look at things like sport, competitive performance, how do things like experiences impact decision-making capabilities or how do certain rational or irrational beliefs inform um, certain perceptions of things like mental health or well-being. <clears throat> and certainly what, what I've found within psychology is, is trying to gain an understanding of how those things can impact that performance, but then also well-being. So it almost forms like that cyclical approach where we tend to see greater performances, greater competitive performances informed by um, much more flourishing psychological well-being and vice versa. Performances, if they're better, tend to also make players feel good about themselves. So my, my approach to, to psychology has changed over the years. I think <clears throat> certainly as, as I was doing my undergrad and my master's, I was largely focused on um, the influence of psychology on performance specifically. So, you know, how can we make these players better? Uh, but certainly, as as I think, as I've as I've matured and I've come away from my masters and, and started my my PhD, which was centered on mental health, it was much more around well, what what we're looking at specifically in relation to well being. So, I think my my understanding of psychology has sort of adapted and changed over the years in terms of. You know what's what's in between their ears you know what's what's the brain telling them how can we help um adapt to certain stresses the high pressure situations that professional athletes are in and, and how that impacts their well-being as well so certainly i think you know like 
definition wise, it's it's all it's always gonna be looking at things like you know, how how behaviors inform actions. But then as I said, I think mine's shifted more towards well being, um, certainly over the last six or seven years. You said that we need a greater understanding around psychology and there's been probably an emphasis on that more recently. How does one develop knowledge within the field of psychology? How does one understand their mental well-being or mental capacity in the field? Um, I, th- I think it comes with appropriate education. I think it comes with appropriate understanding. One of one of the things I've looked at um, centers around um, what we would term as mental health literacy, and and that encompasses psychological well-being as well. So I think um, that needs to start much earlier. Um, I think certainly professional sports over the last few decades has maybe been a bit guilty of, I, I wouldn't say sacrificing well-being, but certainly for the pursuit of excellence, for the pursuit of performance, sometimes well-being falls by the wayside. And I, as we've seen over the years, <clears throat> uh, the ramifications of that, the, the potential negative implications of that can be quite drastic where um, athletes will develop quite severe um psychological disorders on mental health issues sometimes termed as common mental disorders um, as a result of the circumstances the environments the cultures in which they're engaged in for such a long period of time um starts to impact things like their identity and so my, my view is that it needs to start earlier um i mean ideally it, it even starts way before they even enter professional systems it starts in primary schools um so even looking at it from like a government perspective introducing like mental health literacy and um, mental health awareness uh, at these earlier stages of, of life to help inform individuals and certainly something that's improved over the last decade is starting to educate these young players these young athletes who are coming through these systems um, and getting them to to be a bit more self-aware a bit more consciously aware of you know how you're feeling how does it impact your your psychological well-being and and looking for those symptoms, those signs where you know some someone's mental health might be languishing or might be severely affected, and we start to see those early warning signs of of um of clinical issues or or diagnosable mental health issues. So certainly for me, I think enhancing mental health literacy and introducing these programs at, at much earlier stages, um, and I, and I think then the the positives of that is that that then carries right the way throughout the life. So I think we've we've seen a shift in in culture in recent years where we've seen more players, um, active athletes coming out and saying, um, you know, like notable cases, uh, Naomi Osaka, Ben Stokes have have taken breaks from the sport because they said, you know, I've, I've simply it's not good for my mental health to persist at this stage of my life. And then they've come back and they've they've performed and and they've been fine because they needed that and they've been aware of that now. The ramifications of that, if they hadn't been aware of that or hadn't had that mental health literacy, uh, are potentially um, quite significant, as we've seen uh, a number of cases over the years where where athletes have, have come out of the sport or, uh, worst case scenario, have unfortunately taken their own life as a result of uh, an undiagnosed mental health issue. Why do you think there's a limitation in terms of knowledge? You mentioned that word, um, mental, mental li- literacy. Um, why is there... A limitation in terms of our knowledge around mental performance it doesn't necessarily have to be sport it could be in everyday life or do you think there is a limited nature towards that and it's only taken us more 
recent years to really underpin it as a as a as a, a thing that we need to be more aware of? Um, I, I think a number of different things. I think largely um, a lack of awareness, a lack of understanding has been perpetuated through culture, through society for for a long period of time. For <clears throat> for well, right up until well, from the the early nineteen hundreds, let's say, you know, you look at um young men coming home from war, for example, and, and they were diagnosed with shell shock. Uh, we know that now as as post traumatic stress disorder. Um so so even that is is the understanding, the research as perpetuated through society, um, and again, you know, we we look at uh, early early nineteen hundreds, uh, young girls and women diagnosed with hysteria were were sectioned uh, and institutionalized into um, like hospitals that just simply weren't designed to treat them. Um, so again, we we look at that, and that's perpetuated through things like ignorance, lack of understanding, lack of education, lack of research. And unfortunately, that then, as I said, has, has persisted through culture, through society for quite a significant period of time, um, whereby, you know, general understanding, general perceptions become stigmatized because of these irrational beliefs, this lack of this lack of education or understanding, this mental health literacy that I've termed. And this is what creates that stigmatization then, whereby people just don't feel comfortable to to disclose issues. You know, that we, we look at the data, for example, and we know young men and boys are uh, are quite significantly affected by mental health issues um certainly compared to women for example in the data uh, we look at the data and, and women are more likely to be diagnosed with a mental health issue compared to men but they're also more likely to seek help um, and that comes from things like toxic masculinity preconceived notions that because you're male you have to be perceived to act and behave and think and, and feel a certain way. You can't disclose any weaknesses or vulnerabilities. And and a lot of the same things are found within professional sport. Uh, for instance, in my research, when I've when I've spoken to professional athletes, it's, it's this idea that you can't possibly um, demonstrate or show or even hint a, a, a glimpse at a potential weakness <clears throat> or vulnerability because that might impact selection. It might impact your ability to play might impact teammates' uh, willingness or trust in you to, to perform. So so all these things are, are, are developed over a number of decades whereby society itself and culture, um, certainly within this country, uh, for example, you know, other, other countries are guilty of it, uh, but certainly within this country where, you know, we have, we have that ethos of you've got to have that stiff upper lip because you're British, you've got to act and think and feel in a certain way. Um, you know, you can't show any vulnerabilities. So I think that then perpetuates through society. Um, and then that inevitably has become part and parcel of professional sports. You know, you're, you're idolized, you're immortalized as a as an untouchable figure. Um, you know, we, we perceive um, other professions in that way. You know, like doctors are often dehumanized because they're perceived as a doctor. You're not a human being. You're purely there to treat me and, and cure my ailments. Um, so it, irrespective of how I feel or impacts you, your design there is to make me feel better. So often dehumanize, and I think the very, very much the same is said about athletes. And I think certainly since the inception of social media and the the popularity of social media, that again has has perpetuated that stigmatization, this misunderstanding of dehumanizing, 
um, athletes where they're purely perceived as a as a professional athlete and a lot of their worth and a lot of their credibility is tied to the sport. So we tend to see a lot of, <clears throat> certainly on social media, for example, we use Marcus Rashford um, during lockdown, an incredible amount of work to to provide school meals for, for millions of children. And instantly, you got a number of people coming out and saying, why is he not just sticking to football? It's the equivalent of me saying to an electrician, well, you're only allowed to talk about electric. You're only allowed to talk about wires. You're not allowed to talk about anything else in your life. You're an electrician, that's what you do. You're a plumber, that's what you do. It's it's a completely irrational argument, but for whatever reason, that's that's the go-to for professional athletes or anyone involved in, in professional sports. You mentioned the word toxic masculinity and the social fabrication of where you see um, certain traits around what a leader should look like, what a male should look like. Um, and if we are to dissect maybe the social fabrics where we live and, and the way that the culture is, we want to try and develop an openness towards mental health and mental well-being. How does that happen in terms of maybe changing a cultural perception? And is that possible? Is that is that something that can be done? It's definitely possible. And I think we're already starting to see um, positive change facilitated through um, anecdotal evidence, through experiences. You know, we've seen a number of um, high-profile male professional athletes over the years um, disclosing their mental health issues and these things that have developed over over years during their time in sport, which, you know, when from an outsider looking in, you think, God, that, that person's infallible. You know, they're a professional athlete. They've achieved everything that they can achieve within the sport and they're untouchable. untouchable. They're a god in some people's eyes. We, we idolise professional athletes. Um, but then it's it's interesting. You see them come out of the sport and that, that's where they suddenly feel comfortable disclosing these issues. Um, again, another example I can think of, Johnny Wilkinson was was highly regarded as one of the one of the best rugby players ever at the time. And um yeah, you know, he, he came out and discussed his issues with anxiety, he had like crippling that anxiety, um, whereby the only the only place he ever felt comfortable in his life and felt at ease was on a rugby pitch for eighty minutes. Now before and after that, he said he, he was crippling, he was he was vomiting, he found it difficult to cope. Um, he struggled with his identity as a person. He he needed to be on that pitch to to feel feel alive, to feel like he had worth. And I think stories like that, where you you see these really high performing, successful individuals coming out and disclosing their their experiences with mental health issues, and and providing almost like I, I suppose a jumping off point for other people, because you sort of think. Well, if they feel comfortable doing that, and this is someone I really respect and I really regard as as someone at the top of their their field, someone who is who's pursued excellence and achieved it consistently, and that you can you always see like a mirror of yourself there. It's like right, if if they feel comfortable to do that, maybe I should go speak to someone. Maybe I should have a think about how that impacts me, and and I think what that's done over. <clears throat> certainly in the last 10 years is that we then start to see more stories come out and we see more athletes coming out um again i think michael phelps was a really um popular story at the time um multi-gold medal winning olympian 
uh, again perceived as someone at the absolute pinnacle of, of their sport. Uh, and again, he's, he's come out of the sport and said, I've, I've suffered with quite severe mental health issues, a uh, number of different things that have, that have affected him for a long period of time that he didn't feel comfortable engaging with until he was actually out of this culture, out of this environment. But what we have seen in the last couple of years, just to come back to my point, digressed a bit there, sorry, but what we have seen in recent years is actually current players, current athletes are starting to come out and discuss issues. Now, I think that is quite a significantly positive change because previously, over this last 10 years, what we have seen is athletes waiting until they retire, waiting until they've finished to then discuss their issues. Um, what we're now starting to see is actually athletes are discussing these issues whilst they're still competing, whilst they're still engaged with that career. And I think that tells me that that has caused a significant change in perception and dynamic towards what mental health is, what psychological well-being is, and how important it is not just to help individuals function, flourish through everyday life, but actually create a more successful career and actually help their performance. It's not someone who is suffering terribly for, for years on end and until they come out of the sport. It's like, right, now I can go seek help because I'm done. That's behind me. I can put myself here now. So I do think that that has, that has shifted in more recent years. And I think those stories uh, are fantastic starting points because what that does is it tells us the perceptions are changing. There's, there's a shift in terms of Previously, this was a topic that was taboo, stigmatized heavily. And it was a no-no. And, and I've spoken to athletes before. I said, if you even hinted at something like that, it was almost treated like a virus, like it was infectious. Like if you discussed a mental health issue, or even in, like, in some cases, I spoke to an ex-Premier League footballer and he said um, rehabilitation was, was out. It was outside of the, the training environment because the coach almost felt like it was infectious. So if one or two players got injured, it's like, right, get them out of the way, shift them over there. I don't want any other players looking at them or engaging with them because it might impact them. Again, completely irrational, but sort of digressing again, but we come back to my point around that psychological well-being and mental health. To answer your question, I do think it has changed and it is starting to change more positive, positively towards no longer being reactive when someone does have a mental health issue, right, we need to address it. We need to talk about it. It's actually now shifting to becoming proactive. What can we do to actually manage this effectively? What can we do to actually prevent this, to actually start to manage ourselves and, and have that that flourishing mental health, that flourishing psychological well-being and, and understand that. I get the sense that environment is important in what you said in terms of people opening up about their issues. Yeah. For those that are listening, they might be in sport or they might be they might be teachers, might be people that run businesses where they're trying to create a culture in where they work in, in terms of to protect and look after those that they might work with or people that they might lead, etc. Mm. or people that they might teach. How do we set that environment? What kind of things are important within that? environmental practices that can enable people to be more open and holistic towards mental well-being um that's a good question i think there's a number of different things and i think it's being receptive to how big of an impact well-being can have and, and managing 
the individuals, obviously, I think a lot of these places, we take professional sport as an example, largely team-based sports is, is a group of individuals. So that, that culture is facilitated and then perpetuated by the group of individuals. It might be set by the manager or the coach, even the club itself as a club's philosophy. And everyone within that then carries that through. So I think it's everyone's responsibility in a way to, to be more mindful of how big of an impact certain elements of the environment can impact individuals. You know, what are you doing to actually understand and, and be mindful of people's well-being? Because we understand, you know, that a lot of the research around mental health, for example, is, is underpinned by this idea of the mental health continuum. So, so on any given day, any given moment, you can flourish between languishing and flourishing. So you can fluctuate between languishing and flourishing. So say, for example, on one day you might feel really low, you would be categorized as languishing. That isn't to say that you're diagnosed with a mental health issue, but you might just be feeling really low that day. Now, you might feel fantastic for the next three weeks, but it's understanding that if that persists, if that low mood persists for a period of time, is being able to recognize in that in individuals and understand like what do you need to help us help you and i think that's where we're starting to see a cultural shift in society is understanding um you know businesses and and certain fields certain careers um for example you know we, we look at academics teachers there's there's some of the most vulnerable populations for mental health issues um within the country um <clears throat> And I, and I think it's it's telling that we look at those professions, high pressure situations, high demand professions like doctors, um, and and other professions which require quite strenuous high pressure situations as well as competitive demands, repeated and, and numerous demands. Um, is understanding right? What can we do to help facilitate positive change within these cultures? So I think it's just being mindful of the individuals within that group. And I think for me, I don't have all the answers. I'm not going to sit here and say you have to do X, Y, Z to fix a culture because that's that's not for me to say. If the people who are in these are managing these situations and managing these cultures, you can offer advice and say, you know, we, we can be more mindful. We can look at things like mental health first aid. We can look at mental health literacy. We can bring in like a guest speaker or, or someone to help us understand and appreciate the, the varying fluctuations of, of psychological well-being and mental health and, and that helps raise awareness of that and, and bring people's attention to it and that's fantastic but ultimately um, the culture is then facilitated by the individuals within this environment uh, for example you know it was it was something like a common theme within my research is where people these professional athletes referred to the impact of the environment of the culture um these situations whereby they didn't feel comfortable or confident to disclose that they had an issue, to disclose that they felt a vulnerability or they, this was perceived as a weakness because they, they couldn't. They wanted to be a professional athlete that spent the whole life pursuing that um, and they didn't want that to be put at risk. Now that is perpetuated by a culture of professional sport whereby any vulnerability or weakness is that the detriment of performances is potentially going to cost us a win. So it's an outcome-based industry. So obviously from a manager's perspective, if someone is potentially going to hinder the opportunity or chances of a success, 
you're not going to include that person. So that person is going to be immediately conscious of that. You know, it's why we've seen numerous issues over the years whereby players will hide injuries or um, they'll have pain-killing injections in joints or minor injuries, and then that causes a further long-term injury because it worsens over time. But they they see that as an opportunity to, I, I can prove that I'm tough, I'm strong, I'm going to meet the needs and the expectations of this high-pressure environment, I'm going to go and do this to pursue excellence, to pursue, to pursue success. I think that's just the nature of professional sport. There's there's very little we can do about that. But what we can do is we can educate people about it. We can increase awareness. We can make them understand that that potentially is detrimental to long-term mental health. And that is potentially going to cause quite a severe, um, severely negative impact on their well-being long-term. If you make them aware of that, as I said, it's not for me to turn to turn up and say, right, everyone do this and it's going to be fine from from here on out but ultimately yeah the people within these cultures within these environments have to manage that effectively and, and be mindful of that day to day week to week month to month year to year um so that's that's what i have to say as i said I, it's not a, a one-size-fits-all cure-all comments but i think that the main point i'm trying to make is being ultimately mindful of that and aware of that oh, right what can we do to help enhance self-awareness, to help raise people's attention to symptoms, to signs, to signals, however you want to term it, and just trying to engage people in this process and reduce the stigma and making people aware that actually, um, you know, it isn't a weakness to to disclose this. Uh, for instance, you know, some of the strongest people I've ever spoken to and had the pleasure of speaking to uh, retired professional athletes have, have been the most vulnerable to disclose their vulnerabilities and instead of perceiving them as weaknesses, they've perceived them as, well, well my greatest strength is to address this and, and overcome it. I think there's incredible strength in vulnerability in that. Did you, in your studying, in your studies, ever come across upbringing and parenting? And the reason I ask that is, I don't know if you've seen Crystal Palace's Academy documentary on Channel 4 recently. Um, you mentioned pressure and triggers and mindsets and preparation training and everything that goes in terms of making it an as elite player and there was there was cases within that and they referred to a couple of uh, Premier League footballers at Crystal Palace where they talked like parenting and they, they said that the parents were very um, open for them to play football there wasn't much pressure and that enabled them to kind of make it as a career but when you flip it you see a lot of cases where parents are pressurised on their young uh, on their young child i'm intrigued on upbringing and parenting and if that ever has an impact on on psychological well-being to make it as a pro or to make it as um an elite performer yeah absolutely and uh, some of some of the points within my research came across is that what tends to happen at these like um childhood or adolescent stages is that they will repress or carry trauma uh, and what will happen is that then will then start to reveal itself in the form of a common mental disorder into adulthood because you can only control that for a certain period of time. You, your mind can only manage that for so long before it starts to become a detriment to, to your mental health. And, and certainly things like parental pressure, social pressures, piling that on, on young people has, has been 
shown and demonstrated time and time again through research to have a, a significantly negative impact on the individual. One, it can increase the likelihood of dropout or burnout um, at much younger ages uh, as a result of the, of the pressure to, to perform and succeed from external sources, <clears throat> mainly, the, mainly the parents and coaches. So it's actually been shown to have the opposite effect to which it's intended. Um, and beyond that, if they do manage to succeed in, in transitioning to um, professional as a professional player, um, that that sort of trauma is carried through life, um, whereby it then starts to come out in things like a generalised anxiety disorder. Um, for example, gambling addiction is is a prominent issue uh, within professional football, certainly within academy um, stages. Um, one one of the ex Premier League players I spoke to in my research described it as an epidemic. Um, yeah, which which I think was quite a strong word to describe the issue and when I pressed him on it he just said it's everywhere it's so easily accessible um, they've got a lot of time it's an outlet for them it becomes banter it becomes socially acceptable it's a part of the culture etc 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 so um, you know if you manage to make it as a professional you get a professional contract you've got a lot of money a lot of time on your hands you don't know what to do with it um, quite significantly negative in terms of developing addictions um, and, and what we have seen as well is on that is characteristically professional athletes tend to have quite addictive behaviours anyway um, you have to to become a professional athlete uh, so what happens when you're not playing the sport what happens when you're not training that comes out in different ways how do you control that and, and some have done it very well they, they put those pursuits those energies those endeavours into things like businesses and property or restaurants whatever it is that they're interested in their own passions their own hobbies outside of the sport and that's fantastic for for their own psychological well-being broadening their identity etc um my issue in relation to things like parental pressure is that what you're potentially doing is then narrowing that individual's identity into something very very specific um whereby their self-worth then becomes tied to the sport itself um, and the research around things like athletic identity uh, will tell us that that has quite a significantly detrimental effect on psychological well-being and mental health whereby for example if they suffer a long-term injury if they are then deselected so they don't make it as a professional or they have to exit the sport early or even upon retirement so they've had a successful career what happens is as soon as they are without that sport there is sudden dissonance in terms of who they are, how they identify themselves within the world that they live in. And, and that's part of the problem in terms of this heavy parental pressure, whereby you're pushing these individuals, and as I've already said, the risk of burnout, attrition, dropout, etc., etc. Um, Stress-related injuries as well can occur due to things like muscle tension, developing anxiety disorders at like 11, 12, 13, 14 years of age, which is is unbelievable, really. Um, but then beyond that, if that persists over time, we suddenly see a very narrow identity develop. Um, and unfortunately, if you then start to tie your self-worth as an individual, who you are as a person, to one thing, what happens when that one thing is no longer accessible? Who am I in this world? Where do I belong? 
Um, and unfortunately, we have seen cases over the years where absolute worst case scenario, um, unfortunately, a player will take their own life or um, they will attempt to take their own life because they just don't see any other avenue. Um, and and that's the that's the extreme. I understand that, and it's the worst case scenario. But that is that is still an ever present danger. That if you are putting so much pressure on these individuals to succeed in an environment, which realistically is only going to result in point zero one percent of success, what happens to the ninety nine point nine percent of individuals out of millions? So we are talking about millions of of people here. What do they do, and and how is that managed, and how is that? treated and supported would you say it's glamorized neglect yeah 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 absolutely i think <clears throat> certainly within the uk because of the premier league and there's so much money involved i think a lot of parents um again i'm, I'm generalizing here so i'm, I'm going to be careful with my words and not say every every person does this but we've got to consider football as as a heavy working class background um a lot of people were coming from very um, impoverished parts of the country. Football is an outlet, um, and also it's a potential pathway to to success. So I think you're absolutely spot on. It is glamorised, but the Premier League's a huge cash cow. Um, professional football in England specifically is a huge cash cow. So even if you've got a 0.1% chance of success, if you haven't got any other avenue or any other potential support system structures or pursuits in your area, you're going to go for the point one, uh, yeah. And and certainly as a parent, if you're guilty of maybe pushing that a bit too hard, if you want to live vicariously through your child or if you want to see them become a successful Premier League first team player, which is, statistically speaking, highly unlikely. Um, again, I don't I don't necessarily blame them for that. If, if that's the only avenue that we can pursue and you've got a chance, even if it's 0.1% of a chance, there's a chance better than most. Um, if we're being honest, but but still, I think there has to be a line drawn morally and ethically whereby uh, parents and and certainly coaches and and even the players themselves are made aware that this isn't likely. Chances are you aren't going to make it. How are these twenty three players, for example, sixteen to eighteen? Realistically, one of you might make it into this first team. Statistically speaking, one of you might, and that's not even a guarantee. So even statistically speaking, that squad of 23 players probably won't. Um, so I think, yeah, you're absolutely spot on. I think it is glamorised. And then I think there is a an element of, of neglect in that associated with that, that pressure to succeed, that pressure to to acquire that, that success within this environment. And, and as I said, it, it's difficult because you're trying to tread a very thin line there. Because if there is an opportunity for that, and there is chances, we have seen successes over the years. We have seen players come through academy systems, like Marcus Rashford, Trent Alexander-Arnold. They've come right the way through the system and become consistent first-team players. Phil Foden for City done exactly the same. So we're looking at these examples, three examples out of how many millions of kids have been through that exact same system and haven't made it. Um. It, it's difficult and, and I understand that that the system can, can sometimes be at fault for that because what you could achieve is is infinitely beyond imagination but to get there you have to be in such a fine margin of the population it's I think you've got more chance of winning the lottery 
I think statistically speaking, you've got more chance of winning a lottery than you have of becoming a successful Premier League player. So that that tells you how how difficult it is. So absolutely, I, I completely agree with you. I think there is there is elements of that. I want to bring you back to what you mentioned around betting and gambling. So probably past generations, alcohol was probably the the thing that was a distraction in terms of um, social activities and. You mentioned addictive personalities that kind of aligns very much and there is cases of that. Uh, in terms of gambling and um, the processes of that, what was found within your research and how can that impact someone in terms of their their well-being and makeup within a sporting organisation or maybe just in general, just around habits and, and formatting those habits? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it was one of, of um, numerous areas that would term as a maladaptive coping mechanism. And again, this largely comes from a lack of mental health literacy, a lack of self-awareness. So just define what that means, that that coping mechanism. The maladaptive. So basically we will look at two different types of coping mechanisms. So you'll have an adaptive coping mechanism or a strategy, which basically facilitates flourishing mental health. So it helps you manage things effectively and positively and will have positive results, i.e. if you had an anxiety disorder, um, a new practice in mindfulness and that helped relieve like some of the, the symptoms of, of anxiety for you. That would be categorized as, a, as an adaptive coping strategy. What I found is that um, professional athletes who perhaps maybe didn't have that level of self-awareness or understanding of something negatively affecting them was categorized as maladaptive. So it was having, they, had, they would engage in it to cope, but it was having the opposite effect of helping them cope. So what that did, it started to debilitate into an addiction and, and that is in itself categorized as a mental health issue. So I saw, um, speaking to players, the two main ones was gambling and that was perpetuated by the culture itself, i.e. a lot of the other players did it, so I did it. Um, certainly now looking at younger players, significantly easier to access, don't even need to go into a bookies, um, you don't even need to be over 18, you can... Some of them were just like making it up, just signing up to, were 16 years old and were able to sign up to, to some of these sites. I don't know if that is still the case. I don't gamble myself, so I couldn't tell you. Um, so some of them were just signing up and were, were able to just do it on the phones. Literally would be in like gambling seminars and were, were on the apps and then doing it in these sessions. And then the other one I saw predominantly was um, addiction to prescription drugs. So they will be prescribed like painkillers or certain other medicines to to overcome things like repetitive injuries or long-term like pain management, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and one example I can provide you was a rugby player and he, he, he broke his arm and he, he was basically prescribed these painkillers during his rehabilitation. So he was meant to be on these for three months. <clears throat> he was on them for six years and he basically just formed a dependency on them. And, that, and that's probably the key word there is that they become dependent. So that maladaptive coping mechanism becomes part of their daily routine. So for example, to help relieve stress, um, they'll they'll go and put a bet on. That's not successful. So that makes me more stressed. So I'm going to put a bet on. Now that one might succeed. Okay, that makes me feel good. So I'm going to do it again. So we see that, that, that cycle, that maladaptive cycle starting to come into play here. 
Now, whether it's good or bad, it doesn't matter. What you've done is created a maladaptive cycle whereby whenever you feel stressed or anxious or something negative has occurred in your life, you are now putting emphasis and dependency on something that isn't going to make you feel better long-term and is in fact probably going to debilitate your well-being over time because of its unpredictable nature. And, and the same becomes um, evident for things like illicit drugs, prescription drugs, alcohol, as you mentioned. Uh, one player I spoke to, um, unfortunately had to retire because of an injury, um, and he, he became dependent on alcohol as, as a coping strategy because he felt numb. So he thought, well, you know, I should still be playing now, so I'll just use that to numb it. Um, and he went to get to the point where I just fall through the floor, wake up the next day, you feel terrible. Oh, so what should I do if I feel terrible? I'll have a drink. And that'll make me feel better. And then the next day I feel terrible. And then again, so we get into these maladaptive cycles. So their lack of self-awareness and understanding of that cycle, of that coping strategy, has the inverse effect to which it's intended. So as I mentioned to you then, I'm going to engage in mindfulness. Or I'm going to engage in something like a breathing technique. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to speak to a professional. Those are all adaptive because what I'm actually doing is addressing the problem in a facilitative manner that helps actually improve me over time. Whereas the other ones are intended, I'm engaging with them to try and relieve stress, to try and help with the anxious symptoms, to try and help with depression or whatever it is. And it's having the opposite effect. But I don't know that. I'm not aware of that. So you get into this cycle, this debilitative, maladaptive cycle. So instant gratification yeah. rather than delayed gratification. Yes, basically. Of looking at maybe short-term um, short term hit, short term hits for long-term impact. Yeah, it's short-term so gains neg- for long-term neg- loss. That's, that's what I'm looking yeah, at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely spot on, yeah. And, that, and that's what it is in... And unfortunately, because they don't have the awareness and understanding of that, and it ties back to my point earlier about mental health literacy, like these sessions now that are being delivered to these young athletes are around these issues. Like this is what maladaptive coping is. This is what adaptive coping looks like. These are the symptoms of the signs of going into those debilitative cycles. So as soon as you're aware of those, as you, as you start to slip into them, think, all right, that's not right i need to maybe speak to someone about that or i need to come away from that and it might not mean speaking to a professional oh, I've, I've spoken to athletes before and they said you know i've, I've spoken to my parents never spoken to them about it before but created a, a, a huge sense of relief and um, relieved loads of stress in terms of i no longer was carrying this on my own and i had someone who i could rely on and speak and speak to openly and, and honestly and not be judged about it or or anything like that so yeah i think that that's that's the main takeaway of that is that those maladaptive coping mechanisms are short-term gain because it relieves the immediate symptoms because I'm, I'm basically numbing myself to them but one well, I'm, I'm not actually treating them so numbing and treating is is not the same thing so long-term long-term loss yeah if we if we all if we are aware in terms of research around some of the coping strategies and some of the issues that we are uh, faced with within elite sport, um, how do we deal with those problems? What things can we imply um, within a certain culture, a certain environment to help um, prevent certain negative factors 
becoming apparent within a group of people or an individual? Yeah, I, th I think it comes down to if effective programs that are being put into place. Um, well, one of my main recommendations, um, certainly as a result of the literature and the research that I conducted, was around enhancing the availability of clinical psychological support. Um, but also, I suppose, just trying to reduce um, a misunderstanding or stigmatization around sports psychology as well is like there's still a, a sort of perception that there has to be something wrong uh, to, to go and speak to a specialist or a practitioner or a professional in relation to how you're feeling. And, and what a lot of <clears throat> sports psychologists will report back with, um, certainly the ones I've spoken to in relation to research, say a player or an athlete will come and discuss a performance-related issue and it'll actually be underpinned by a well-being issue and they've just not been aware of it. Um, and then that helps us address that first and foremost, but then that then raises their awareness to understanding that. And what we've seen is actually, as I mentioned before, if you enhance their well-being, you're likely to see performance improve. And I think certainly for someone like a manager, a coach, or even a stakeholder within a football club, if you say to them, right, if you actually take better care of these individuals' mental health, you're probably actually going to see better performance on the pitch, which actually will more likely lead to a success. Now, that isn't a guarantee, but what we are seeing over the last few years is as this research has developed, the better these players feel, the more likely they are to, to perform better. So do you want to win or do you not want to win? It's an outcome-based business. So I think those programs need to be set and need to be developed more robustly. But certainly for me, I think embedding that mental health literacy programs first and foremost, um, we've seen a significant investment from the Premier League in relation to player care as well. And I think that as a role can have a significant effect because certainly um, player care, I, I see it as almost like... Um, almost like a linchpin across the multidisciplinary team whereby if you can approach a player care officer or however that position is defined within the environment and they're aware like right if you've got this issue this issue speak to the physio you've got this issue speak to the sports psych this issue speak to the sports scientist they're almost like that that point of knowledge whereby you approach the player care and they can direct you to the appropriate place but then beyond that i think embedding clinical psychological support in these environments because one of the most significant issues I came across in my PhD research um, was in relation to referral systems. So referral systems were really quite laborious, um, quite long drawn out, um, quite difficult to engage with. There were issues with consistency. Um, a lot of responsibility was placed on the sports psychologist or, or the club doctor. Um, and in most cases, when I actually investigated this, the club doctor could only refer them to their GP, uh, whereas the sports psychologist was then reliant on their pre-existing contacts. Uh, for example, I spoke to a number of sports psychs um, who work in professional sports, uh, and they said, you know, came across a number of different um, problems with, with athletes who were suffering with, with mental health issues. And it was basically down to me to just refer them because I knew a clinical psychologist and, and I could refer them directly and say, well, I've got such a body here, can, can I refer them to you as a client or as a, as a patient? Yeah, fantastic, immediate referral. Now, if that wasn't available, they had to go through, um, especially within football, try and go through the, the PFA, which then referred them to Sporting Chance. 
we've got the network of counsellors which they can speak to um and then you know if if the issue was was more severe they could go to to the clinic now that clinic is is, is quite small um and it doesn't account for a great number of people unfortunately so they are very limited um and what i found is that a lot of the athletes who go through that pathway tended to just sort of drop out of it like all right they've addressed me immediate issue there's quite a long waiting time or can i be immediately referred so positives and negatives for that but certainly for me if you're then embedding clinical psychological sport within these environments it creates an, an immediate referral pathway whereby it removes all that monotony it removes all that um rigor of trying to actually engage with these services because what i found as well is athletes tend to want that immediate impact be used to it especially in the professional environments what do you need there it is get it on the day or even the next day at the absolute latest whereas when it comes to clinical support for a mental health issue because a sports hike isn't qualified to treat that they have to be referred same as the, the club doctor is not qualified to treat that have to be referred out same as the counselors within that network of counselors they are not qualified to actually treat a mental health issue they're qualified to provide the advice and potentially then refer you on so again we're, we're hitting like two three four five points before you actually engage with a treatment service whereas if you're embedding it in the environment or at least providing a source whereby you know they don't have to be on the training ground every day but you know I could go to a sports psych and say, oh, I need to speak to a, a clinical support professional. Okay, there's their card. They'll be able to arrange an appointment in the next 24 hours. Immediate. And I think that's where something professional sport can look at is, is enhancing these referral pathways whereby I think they've got a duty of care and responsibility for, for these people who have dedicated their lives to what is an entertainment industry. You know, they've, they've become professional athletes for our entertainment and there's a hell of a lot of money involved in that and they have dedicated their life they've sacrificed a hell of a lot to be able to pursue that so i think stakeholders and multiple multidisciplinary team within these environments have got a duty care and responsibility to actually provide them with the necessary treatment support and um, as i said doesn't immediately need to be an individual who's set in this environment every day it could come in once a week or, or be available once every two weeks. But then we know if they need to be contactable and reachable and available for that, it's a direct line rather than a five, six, seven point process. Interesting. <laughs> Tom, I just want to thank you for your time today. And for those watching and listening, where can they, where can they find you? And secondly, where can they find your research and your academic profile? Um, so they can find me on LinkedIn. It's just Thomas Book on LinkedIn. Happy to speak to people about it. Um, I do have a, a chapter from one of my studies in a, in a Routledge text on athlete transitions. So it was a case study on two uh, Premier League players. Um, and in terms of accessing the wider literature, that will be out soon. <laughs> Super vague, but it'll, it'll be out soon. Have you got links to that? So what we can do in the description, description we can put the links to your linkedin as well as other studies as well so yeah, yeah. anyone's listening or watching the mm -hmm. check that out um once again thank you oh thank you good on enjoyed it thank you and uh cheers cheers mate cheers thanks very much thank